You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Listeners, welcome back to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel, and this is our continuing series on philanthropy and the role that it's played in my life and providing perspective about the evolution of my experiences and lessons learned in philanthropy and charity. The guest today is a gentleman by the name of Robert Wicks. And instead of giving the traditional sort of three-minute bio background on you, Robert, I'm just going to start with a story, and we'll pick it up from there. So, Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, totally. And the Robert story that I'm going to start with is Robert may not really understand this, but Robert changed my life. And the way that Robert changed my life is when he was working at Stanford, which we'll talk about in a little while, was one of his earliest engagements in the philanthropic world. He was in the Office of Development. And I shared with you listeners the story of the founding of Spire. And without Robert, Spire never would have happened. And without Spire, I never would have had all of the experiences that I've shared with you in these three episodes about philanthropy and my experience in it. The way that Robert was really the superhero that helped us get Spire off the ground. And I'm hoping that the statute of limitations has expired here and that I'm not going to get him in trouble. Be careful. But yes. Yeah. I can't get fired from a job that I don't have anymore, but go ahead. <laughs> Robert was daring enough and visionary enough to see that what we were doing at Spire, even though it was outside the norm and was really innovating in terms of alumni engagement at Stanford, and while the official policies and perspectives of the Office of Development and the Alumni Association may not have really seen the vision of what Spire could be and what it ultimately now has proven itself to be, Robert had that vision and was really willing to stick his neck out and take a little bit of a risk in helping us get that organization off the ground, providing us the right contacts and ability to connect with alumni in the real estate space to really get the ball rolling and get the organization pulled together. Robert, I know that I've thanked you before for our experience at that time, but I want to take this moment to say again for all of our listeners and publicly acknowledge you and thank you very much for the impact you had on Spire, on Stanford, and on my life. Well, you know, I really appreciate all that. It's really gratifying to see what it's become. It's become exactly what we imagined it would be which, you know, you don't often see that happen where it's met the potential and it's been a force for good, right? And that's at the time just sitting in my cube thinking, should I help or not? I probably shouldn't help. 
I just had an idea that it was going to turn out really well in the end. So I'm glad to hear the update of the story and see everything. That's what, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, we're coming up on exactly 15 years because it was my 10th reunion cycle when we pulled Spire together and got it off the ground. An old phrase here in Silicon Valley that I often think about, they say the network is the computer. And I think that's really true with Spire that we say you build the network and it will do everything that everyone needs it to. There's more than enough generosity and more than enough intellectual firepower and all that, but somebody has to build the network. You get a lot of credit for making that happen because it had been easier not to. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And it's exactly what you said. It's the network and what I consider the platform. The reason why I use that term platform is because it has become what each member has made of it. And it has become many different things to many different people. Probably the most gratifying thing to me is here 15 years later, I have no hand in running the organization whatsoever. And it's taken on a life of its own. And as I said, it's served so many people from faculty to students to administration to alumni in very different ways. And I think that's what's amazing about an organization like that. And Robert, that's a good place for us to sort of talk about this network effect and what it means to engage in philanthropy and how it can change people's lives, how it has impacted your life, my life. And so let's now go back and why don't you share kind of your update, where you are today, what you're doing right now, and then some of the background that has led you to, to that position. Yeah. So I am now vice president of philanthropy and CEO of the foundation at the Gladstone Institutes, which is an incredible institution, a collection of 30 labs and 500 scientists working on all of the diseases that are going to kill all of us, right? Cancer, heart disease, HIV, Alzheimer's. Our scientists are singularly focused on finding therapeutics and cures and making progress. I hadn't realized before I took the job, it's now four and a half years ago, what was possible in medicine and biology. I don't think most people do know, but we really are at a sort of revolutionary moment where there's a complete paradigm shift happening. And I was lucky enough that philanthropy brought me right into the middle of it. And I got recruited for the job and I said, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know anything about biology. And one of my mentors who knew Gladstone well said, you really know philanthropy and you really know Silicon Valley and that times this biomedical revolution is a really powerful formula. And so I just kind of dove in with the trust that I would learn the content and figure out. I didn't know the difference between DNA and RNA or, you know, any of that. So I've been having a blast just on a really steep learning curve. Scientists are really some of the most interesting people in the world because every day there's something that they see that amazes them. The capacity for wonder they have. I haven't seen it in any other field. I wouldn't have been in the position I'm in now without the training at Stanford because it's the gold standard when it comes to philanthropy and philanthropic advising and managing volunteers and figuring out where in the world people want to make a difference and then pointing them in the direction where that's possible. Yeah, you were talking about science, and I think that every field has a science to it, and then it has an art. And one of the things you told me before is that you've really become 
proficient in the art of advising philanthropists. I like that. Can you tell us what that means and how you develop that proficiency? That makes it sound like I've got it figured out. It is definitely a process. I'm in a contact sport. Like my business is to go and talk to people. I will have maybe 120, 150 significant conversations with different people every year, year after year after year after year. And so you start to develop some pattern recognition, but also uh, you start to learn where to start and what has to happen in that first conversation so you can gather some data points. And then you have to have an idea of what the second conversation is, when it's going to happen, why it should happen. The relationship you and I had 15 years ago probably wasn't more than three or four conversations. When I left one of those, I would go back to the office and think, when do I need to talk to Chad again? And how can I make good use of his time? And what do I not yet know that I need to know? It's true that I have approached it more like a science sometimes. I think that these conversations, there is a taxonomy. There are six or seven or eight different kinds of conversations that a philanthropic advisor has to become expert in. I study the people who are really good in my field. And I always want to know, where did you start? Where did the conversation go then? And when you got that question, how did you know to go? Right. So I'm always sort of studying the Joe Montana's and the, and the Tom Brady's of my field. What I think is really cool about your story and the way you've explained it is to me, it's not that you have practiced in order to become proficient. Your proficiency is actually in practicing. Yeah. You're proficient at practicing your craft. Yeah. And you told me that some of that actually came from your origins as an athlete and being a runner. I can't believe you remember that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can take us back to those experiences and how running and the sport translates into life. That's really interesting. I'm thinking a lot about it right now because I've been an athlete up until just recently, right? I think at this point now I'm realizing that I'm not going to be competing the way I had been before. See, I've gone the other way. I've never been an athlete, but suddenly I am because everyone around me got old and I took care of myself. Yeah, I am breaking down a little bit. I started as a runner. What I love about that sport is that it is ruthless. The judgment is whoever ran faster is better. I was a miler. I could compare my mile time that's run on a flat track to anyone's mile time in history. And I can compare it to my rival across the state. What's he running right now? And if he's running faster, I know I've got more work to do. And so a sport where the people who work harder tend to do better, and you don't have to worry about referees, and you don't have to worry about coaches, you don't worry about playing time, you just have to worry about you know how driven can you be, and how much pain can you tolerate, and how much do you want it? The other thing about cross country and track is that there's this individual component, but also a team component. So in cross country, the team advances until it can't advance anymore, but the individual athletes can continue to advance. So you can go to states and nationals and all of that. So I loved being an individual athlete. Then I took up team sports, which are hugely frustrating. My experience in team sports have been as a player coach. So I spent about 15, almost 20 years playing competitive ultimate. 
a sport that not everybody knows a lot about, but it is a massive phenomena. It's played at every university in the country. It's played in every country in the world. It will be an Olympic sport soon. It is self-refereed. When you commit a foul, it's incumbent on the two people involved to stand shoulder to shoulder and decide what happened, right? So it has all wow. of these things baked into it that are pretty interesting. It's also, you're not paid to do it. So when you do it on the club level, you're flying all over the country and all over the world on your own dime. And you don't typically have professionalized coaching. You have somebody like me running a team, right? So for 15, 20 years, I had to figure out how to get grown men to show up, run drills, be on the sidelines. Only seven people play at a time. So there's another 15, 20 people that are grumbling that they're not playing. And I had to call all the subs, do all of that, and look at the roster at the beginning of the season and decide where we could go and then figure out if I could help get them there. I find that hugely frustrating because you would have a playbook and you'd get three people that would learn the plays and four people that would be staring off into the sky, right? And so trying to push people to want it as much as I wanted it and uh, to work as hard as I was willing to work, that's what I love about team sports is how frustrating and disappointing they can be. But I've sort of given all that up. I came out of retirement a couple of years ago and was on a team where I was a player coach and we finished fourth at nationals completely absurd result because the teams we were playing against were very, very fit and very, very focused. Our team was mostly a bunch of guys like me. So because we finished fourth at nationals, we got to go to worlds. There is a world championships for ultimate and we finished fourth at worlds. Right. Wow. So I had the sort of fire in the belly again. And my wife said, that's it. One season was enough. <laughs> that, that was your dodgeball story. <laughs> that was my That's dodgeball great. story. Yeah. Well, it's amazing when you describe that because ultimate sounds to me like simultaneously an ultimate team sport, but also an ultimate experience in self-reliance. You've got to travel for yourself. You've got to coach for yourself. You've got a referee for yourself. And I can see how that would translate so much into the environment of working in the nonprofit sector where you are working to bring up the collective for the common good, but it does truly take, as we've described in your experience at Stanford, an individual sometimes to step up and say, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to take care of this. Yeah. You know, the thing is also, you've seen this, you've watched a lot of competitive sports and been highly involved with teams and all that. It's the same in fundraising, in probably any endeavor. There are times when you sort of look around a collection of people and, and say, why are you making it so hard? It's not as difficult as it needs to be. Like when I was in the cubes at Stanford, there was a guy whose cube was right next to mine. And I got off the phone one day and he said, man, you make it seem so easy. And I said, Mike, you make it seem so hard. It's not. Right? You're just <laughs> talking to people. When I'm running a team, I'm running now an eighth grade girls basketball team, and I'm talking about the space that they can create on the court, and I'm talking about the sound that their shoes should be making. You know, do you feel this play? Do you have a sense of where you are? This is the old Bill Bradley book. You just need to know. You need to be able to throw the ball over your head because you know the basket's there. It's the same in my field, I often talk about, let's figure out where these relationships are in space and time. We need to meet people where they are. We need to know where they are. 
What are they thinking? How are they feeling? Like, what are the things that are impacting them right now? And how can we get them a little bit closer to where they want to be? You don't do that all at once. It's incremental. Yeah, it sounds like a combination of developing awareness and then cultivating trust. That and simplifying and simplifying and simplifying, right? I mean, most things, you go faster if you're lighter. Most things are easier if you simplify them. Well, let's go back to your experiences at Stanford and those formative times that you know were your introduction to working this environment just as it was for me at that same time. During your time at Stanford, not only did you learn, but you got to teach. One of the things I hold to the most is the best way to truly learn something is to teach it. Because if you can teach it, that means that you not only know it well enough to understand it yourself, but you know it well enough to communicate it to somebody else. Share with us a bit more about your full breadth of your experience while you were at Stanford. Oh, gosh. Phenomenally lucky that I ever landed there in the first place. I'm a Berkeley guy. I was in the English department at Berkeley. I was on a path to be a professor and then decided that wasn't going to be my fate. And I ran a company. And then I went back to Berkeley because my wife said, you're so happy when you're there. You should work at Berkeley. So I went to a guy who was the head of external relations, the vice chancellor of external relations. I didn't know that there was even. And I said, is there something I can do to help run a piece of the university? Like I thought it would be academic advising or the writing center or something like that. And he said, you should go to Stanford and be a fundraiser. He said, you will learn more about how higher ed works than you ever thought you wanted to know. You'll have one inch of knowledge of the institution, you know, across all departments and across all disciplines. And you will come into contact with some of the most interesting people you could ever hope to meet. I thought it was a dumb idea. I said, I don't want to go to Stanford. I don't want to be a fundraiser. Nobody grows up wanting to do it. But Stanford called me, so I'm sure he placed a call because they called me and said, we have a job that we think you might be good at. They really started me at as close to the bottom of the career ladder in development as you could be. And I loved it from the second they gave me a phone and a cube because I was talking to folks like you. I was talking to people who were really passionate about helping the institution. I started by working with older classes. I started on the reunion campaigns and they said, you know, what campaigns would be most interesting to you? And I said, I think I'd like to do the 45th reunions. Nobody wants to do those. But I found them really interesting because you are 66 years old, 67 years old. You get these people who some of them don't need to work anymore. Some of them are panicked about how much more they need to work before they can not work anymore. Some of them are failing in health. Some of them have died, and the class is dealing with that. There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff happening. And the class I started with was a class of 60, 1960. I really dove into the culture of that class. I looked at all of their yearbooks, and I looked at all the fraternities who was in the different fraternities. I thought about what were the headlines in the newspapers when they got to campus in 1956, and what were the headlines in 1960. So I really got into the reunion fundraising model. And nobody does it better than Stanford. There are other places that do it just as well, but not that many. So that goes back to athletics, actually, because when I was at Berkeley, I was captain of the ultimate team. We would play Stanford and they would beat us every time. But I would look across the line and we were better athletes than each one of them 
but they would beat us 13-3, 13-4. It wouldn't even be close. So after our college careers, I went to the captain at Stanford and I said, why is it that we could never beat you? And he said, we run plays, you make plays, right? He said, we give the freshmen on our team the playbook and they learn it and we execute the plan. You guys are creative and you make plays and that's really fun. We admire you. You admire us. We're always going to beat you as long as you don't commit to a playbook. So when I got to Stanford in the development office, it really is a very carefully developed playbook. They don't require a lot of creativity. They require careful execution to plan. And I think it's something that is part of Stanford's brilliance is they pick a path and they then achieve their goal because they do execute the plan really, really, really well. And they stay focused. The mentor who told me to come to Stanford, that was his piece of advice. He said, if you pick something you care about and can make one degree of difference at Stanford, over the course of time, that's going to be a really big deal because they, they move forward so well. Versus some other institutions are often putting out fires and going backwards and changing directions. So that learning to execute the plan, learning the process, learning how to do everything according to a gold standard. I did that for almost 10 years. And then, honestly, it became exhausting because I wanted to be disruptive. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to try some things that Stanford just didn't need to try. I, you know, I wanted to figure out how to build a team with a different philosophy than the dominant philosophy at Stanford. And they said, there won't be that opportunity here. We need you to teach and lead, but we need you to sit here. And so I, I left, and I'm glad I did. As soon as I left, I realized how much greater that organization is. I went to Dartmouth to run their West Coast office, and they didn't have any of the processes or tools that I had just come to take for granted. When I left Stanford, one of my mentors and a senior person in the organization said, we loved having one of you. We wouldn't want to have five of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the ultimate compliment they could pay because that means you're just enough of a rebel rouser to be a difference maker but that they couldn't tolerate, as you said, more than one person like that at a time. Yeah. And they have been totally happy for my success since. And they know that my training is the reason I've been able to help organizations. Their playbook is really good. Well, let's shift the focus a little bit because here at Datages, a lot of what we focus on is how our professional life and the things we engage in intersect with family. And I think you have a really informed and interesting perspective on that because in the process of learning this art of working with philanthropists, you've really delved deeply into the topic of wealth and families and generational wealth and what it means to families and how philanthropy and money impact families across generations. Can you share some of your perspectives that you've cultivated on those topics? I see a lot of unhappiness at the family level. I see a common pattern, especially when I was at Stanford. I would meet with the woman who was recently divorced. Her husband worked like crazy and created wealth and a beautiful life and all of that, and then left to go on and do something else. 
And so I would meet with that woman in a cafe and she'd be figuring out, you know, I've got an 11th grader. How can I get them into Stanford or where should they, all of that. And then I would sometimes meet with the husband and he would have a different story. And so I see, I do see, it's very intimate work. You get to know people really well. I do see families that have fallen apart because they have maybe focused too much just on the financial capital that they are able to produce and muster. One of the frameworks that is really fundamental to how I think is this notion of multiple forms of capital. So I try to get people to realize that the stuff that they're accumulating, but how they deploy it, that there's intellectual capital, your brain power. There is emotional capital, your heart. There is financial capital, sure. And there is social capital, your network and the people you know. If the only thing that you're accounting for is how much of your financial capital you can pass on to the people that you love or share with the organizations you care about, it's likely to be a bad outcome or a frustrating outcome or a disappointing outcome. That's true. Also, you know, there are people who don't have the financial capital to help an organization or don't have the financial capital to make their family safe forever, right? financial security. I think most people have significantly more emotional and social and intellectual capital than they realize. I think about that myself. You know, I have quite a lot of those things. How can I make sure that my children feel like they're inheriting as much of that as they can? Yeah, you're exceptionally wealthy in those domains. It's something you've cultivated over your entire lifetime. And I'd like to you know stick with this topic for a moment because i think it's one of the things that i really try to drive home with our listeners through this series that i'm doing is to show the arc of my career in philanthropy and you know it started out just in volunteerism and nothing more than literally manual labor carrying sacks of rice into a refugee center during hurricane katrina it's the lowest common denominator, but still impactful in terms of the ability to help. Maybe you can share some examples of how people who feel like they're closed out of the philanthropy world because they don't have the financial capital, how they can bring that other capital to bear. I created this group called Fundraisers Without Borders. What we're trying to do with it was, you know, as fundraisers, we form these intimate relationships, these significant conversations, these ongoing dialogues with people of extraordinary means, people who can write a $150 million check. You can start to feel like your ability to contribute financial capital to an organization is limited in that case. But we did a series of interviews with the greatest fundraisers at Stanford over the course of several months on Fridays. And I started to notice a pattern. They all probably had more to give than they realized. And I asked this foundation that has a collection of social entrepreneurs that they support, if a small group of fundraisers who are really good at what they do could be useful on a pro bono basis, could we give advice to nonprofits about how to manage the key relationships they have, how to get a meeting, what happens in the meeting, the basics of our craft? And it turns out that there was overwhelming need there. At every nonprofit, they need to figure out how to fundraise better and how to manage the relationships that they have. I realized that this cohort that I knew really, really well, fundraisers, 
had this massive untapped capital that they could give away and would give away. So I do that. There are probably 20 different nonprofits that know they can call me anytime for advice on anything. It's often we have a really important conversation coming up. How would you prepare for something like this? So I think anything that any of us has become exceptionally good at, you probably could find an opportunity to give that away and it would do a lot of good for a nonprofit that you care about. Yeah, and it could be so much more valuable than any amount of money you could provide. It's sort of the uh, teach a man to fish analogy. The other thing is, I would say is you have to give it away. Yeah. You have to give it away. It feels so good to do it. What people often don't understand about fundraising is they say, how can you do it? You're always asking people for money. And I say, that's not the business at all. That's not the job at all. You're helping people figure out how and where they can make a difference. And when you get it right, and it happens a lot, people weep, right? It is a really emotional moment when you get it right and you figured it out. Whatever you have to give away, you should give away. This is my view. It's amazing how much more comes back to you when you do that. You know, that's really beautiful, Robert. But now I feel left out because I don't think you've ever made me weep in our philanthropic activities together. But you've certainly had a pronounced impact on me, as I shared earlier. Uh, obviously, some of your skill set is, is based upon the job learnings, as we've discussed earlier, from your time at Stanford and elsewhere. But I think some of your innate abilities are more fundamental in about who you are as Robert Wicks. Um, we're in... We're going to pause here. Um, when we come back for our next episode, Robert, we will get into your origin story. We'll talk about some of the real titans of philanthropy with whom you've engaged and let you introduce the concept of gratituding. And importantly for our audience here at Datages, we will talk about how you've passed the experiences, the wisdom, and the lessons you've gleaned from life and particularly from your career in philanthropy surrounded by a network of next level individuals onto your own children. Uh, listeners, you won't want to miss the remainder of the interview with Robert Wickst and our next episode of Dadages. Until then, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.